0: This is Younger Balmore, Brother Philip, bringing you guys a brief pre-episode apology. This is for my awesome brother and co-host Jake, as well as our listeners. It'll have been almost a month between the publishing of this episode in mid-April and its recording and announcement back in March. In the meantime, I've gotten sick, started a new job, gone on vacation, and wrapped up some wedding planning. If you notice that any of the coverage in our current event segment isn't quite current, and some of our other coverage seems a bit dated, and that's all totally my fault. Going forward, this shouldn't be an issue, and I hope you guys enjoy the episode regardless. Welcome to the Balmor Brothers Podcast. I'm your host, Philip.
1: And I'm your other host, Jacob. This week on Balmora Brothers, we're bringing you some current events. We're going to talk a little about the Venom movie that was just announced. We've also got some of the preliminary Switch sales numbers, and we're going to touch on uh, Nintendo's artificial scarcity. We've got an update to the Apple Store with a focus on indie games to hit you with, as well as a bit of a snafu, a Trojan exception that is currently affecting Apple users, On PS4 we've also got some pros and cons, we've got an external HD support, and we've also got uh, an issue with the Wi-Fi that rolled out in their last patch, and an upcoming patch for Xbox Live will give you the ability to transcribe your Xbox Live conversations as text, so what do we got after that, Phil?
0: All right, we're going to slide right on into Hollywood bias. We're going to talk about queer coding and whitewashing. What do those mean and uh, how are they affecting current cinema and some major releases that have come out recently that kind of fall under these categories. After that, we're going to move on into unfinished business and cover what?
1: We are going to wrap up Bioshock. Last time we got all the way up to Andrew Ryan, I'm going to let you know how I felt uh, felt about the resolution from that point on.
0: All right, well that's going to be our episode this week, so without further ado, let's get started. All right, Jake, so first up in current events, this is really recent. Uh, Last night, I think, actually, the news dropped from Sony, it is, that a Venom movie is coming out next year on my birthday. What do you know about the Venom movie and really, what do any of us know about it? Because it's kind of hit out of nowhere, right?
1: Absolutely out of nowhere. Uh, I've got no idea. I actually was lamentably awake when that announcement came out. So I saw it and I was like, oh, Phil is going to be so excited. Because I know how much you like Venom. And I like Venom too. Uh, he got kind of a bad rap in the third Tobey Maguire movie. Um, but he's a really cool villain. Well, really antihero, if you're uh into the comics or the book. What was the name of that book that we we read?
0: Uh I do not remember. I do know what book you're talking about. It's the one where Spider Man goes to the Everglades and Venom is kind of his constant uh antihero clash in that book where he's I think fighting uh, Connors, maybe, is the real villain in that book. But anyway. You're, you're right. So so Venom is an antihero in the sense that he's always at odds with Spider-Man. He kind of likes to do things his own way. But he's also got this soft spot for like the homeless and disheveled wretches of New York City. So it's going to be interesting to see how they play the character out and how... I think at the moment it seems like it's going to be a standalone film and they may not necessarily try to roll it into the whole Marvel world because it's a Sony film. So I guess Sony still owns the rights to most of the Spider-Man universe and they just gave Marvel permission to run with Spider-Man for the new films. But for, for those of you who know, Venom is, is a pretty badass symbiote, right? This alien that falls out of the sky and just wreaks havoc on people's souls and is pretty different as far as the Spider-Man universe is concerned. You know, he's extremely strong. He has a lot of the same powers, I guess, as Spider-Man because he's like a liquid alien that can essentially do anything. And so it'll be a really cool take on the story, I hope. So we'll see who they choose to play, you know, Eddie Brock or or whoever Venom ends up being in this incarnation and, uh, and kind of where it goes. I hope it's Brock.
1: Uh, Brock, definitely had the strongest storyline in the comic books and they really like I said he got really kind of sold short in the movie Um, he's a much more dynamic character and I don't know if they're gonna play it in New York necessarily they definitely could and then that gives him the whole like conflict with Spider-Man back and forth kind of thing but they run the risk of making him too much of a villain at that point and what I think is, is pretty cool that's coming around now is this idea that, like, we can make these anti hero characters. I think maybe, like, you know, Deadpool was a good starting point. Then we had Logan, um, where you've got two pretty, pretty positive anti heroes. Um, but coming up, we're going to have two, maybe not so positive, uh, with Venom. And also, they announced that, um, I don't know if you heard about this, but uh, Black Adam which is uh, The Rock's character from the upcoming uh, DC Justice League movie. He's going to get his own spinoff as well.
0: I I kind of heard a little bit about that. I'm really excited for The Rock because everything that guy touches kind of turns to gold. You can't really deny his, I don't want to say his acting chops, he's not going to win an Oscar, but he does do a really good job of rejuvenating franchises and kind of bringing a really fresh not just masculine, but fun take on stuff. And I know black Adams, not necessarily like that, but it'll, it'll be good to see where he goes with that. So I didn't know a lot about that. And I honestly wasn't even sure that was a done deal, but if it is then, then, you know, more power to him.
1: I'm excited about the prospect, you know, personally, I think Venom is such a strong character. I would almost rather than put him in San Francisco, which is where the the comic arc takes him. Eventually the clashing with Spider-Man just becomes too much And he relocates to this underground refuge in San Francisco and basically becomes like the Spider-Man of San Francisco. Um, So he does all of his, you know, anti-hero do-gooding without having to worry about crossing the Web Slinger's uh, path.
0: Yeah, last thing on Venom, I'm going to call it right now, in some way, Carnage is going to be... Either in that film, or he is going to be like the stinger at the end of Venom is like some kind of plug for Carnage. Moving on, our second topic today in current events, we're talking about Switch sales numbers. So I know last week we talked about the Switch initially looking like it was going to sell really well, and I think based on some third-party numbers... We're looking at like a million and a half consoles sold worldwide in the first week, a little bit higher as of now. It's been out for about two, almost exactly two weeks now, actually. So compared to the Wii U, which actually did okay when it launched, I think in the U.S. the Switch is up about twenty or 30,000 units week one. And when you consider the Switch came out in March, or right at the beginning of March, and the Wii U was hitting in the holiday season, it's pretty, pretty impressive from Nintendo. Uh, the other thing we were going to talk about, I think, is supply. So I know you've had some frustrations with kind of being hard to get as far as Nintendo consoles are concerned. So what did you have on that?
1: Uh, well, I mean, it's oh, uh, nothing infuriates me more than artificial scarcity. And Nintendo seems to do this all the time. And so my big frustration was with the 2DS system. So the 2DS has been out for years. I mean, it's nothing new. Uh, But when the new Pokemon game came out, and I was like, you know what, I finally would like to get into this. I don't need the 3D. I think the 2DS, because like we said in a previous podcast, you and I are big guys. We have big hands. The 2DS just gives me more real estate. ...to be able to hold it. So it had everything I needed and also gave me access to this huge panoply of, of... ...DS games, you know, from three generations of this console. So I was excited. So I went out to get it and it was right around Black Friday and... ...they had just announced in November that they were... ...or in October, rather, that in November they were going to launch a brand new... ...version of the 2DS... There was no spec changes or anything, they just changed the color around. Instead of being predominantly black, it was going to be predominantly red or blue with black accents. And all of these new units were supposed to ship and be there for, like, the Black Friday season. But when I went around to anywhere that was supposed to be selling them, whether it was Target, Toys R Us, Best Buy, or uh, GameStop... They were all like, yeah, no, we we don't have them. We haven't had them since September when there was a run on them. And this new wave that we were supposed to get all these consoles of, they sent us like two to four units per store. And that was like a month ago. So uh, it took me like a month of my little Pokemon. Cause I bought it at Best Buy like the day it the week it came out or whatever. And so I'm like super excited and it's sitting there on my counter and just staring at me laughing because I have nothing to play this on. So they're doing, I guess the same thing with the switch. What have you, what have you heard there?
0: Yeah. So, you know, they did this with, with honestly pretty much every Nintendo system, but yeah, with the switch, it's one of those things where it seems like a little bit less so than the Nintendo Classic Console, the NES Classic Edition. It, it doesn't seem like it's that scarce. Like if you really look around and kind of call, you may be able to find one or get a return, kind of on the off chance. But but it seems like the inventory is a little bit better than that. But in general, most places, even if it says it's available, you're probably looking at like halfway through next month before you're getting one. So Nintendo's kind of a master at this, and it's on. It's a it's a double-sided coin, right? So on one hand. It's awesome for them, more power to them. If you can string along demand and really get people hyped about your product, then, you know, why not do that and and just keep chugging along? Because Nintendo doesn't have the laurels anymore, at least, that Microsoft and Sony do where you can hook people in to Call of Duty every year and you can rely on your system's graphics and media capabilities. Really, Nintendo's relying on keeping hype up, selling units and killing it with first-party titles. So they, they kind of need to resort to this maybe a little bit more than the other guys do. But obviously, on the other hand, it sucks if you're a consumer because all you want to do is play the games and support the company, and it becomes this chore of trying to hunt one down. So I think in the next few weeks, we'll get a pretty good idea of whether or not it's going to be a big issue or if Nintendo has kind of anticipated demand, maybe based on how well that $60 classic NES did. But either way, we'll keep you guys up to date on that. The next thing we had in current events was a couple Apple-related stories. So the first thing is in the Apple, I guess in the iTunes uh, section or if you're on uh, the phones, wherever their app store is, they're actually highlighting indie games now. And I know you had brought that to my attention. And, and last week or, or maybe two weeks ago, we talked about Steam Greenlight kind of reshaping how people look at indie games or uh, whatever their new thing is called for Steam Greenlight. So what's Apple doing with these indie games? And and I'm sure you think it's a good thing, but tell us a little bit more about it. So
1: there's not a whole lot to report on necessarily. Um, They've had some indie games on their app store for a while now, but you kind of had to know what you were looking for. They they weren't like, you know, unless they were very popular titles, you kind of had to like dig through the dredges of the app store before you would find them because they're indie games and they don't have the money to advertise or bump into the front page of iTunes or whatever. Um, But now there's a new tab um, that's called Celebrating Indie Games. And so, if you if you click on that tab, you're going to be rewarded with uh, a huge variety of individual uh, produced games. And so, yeah, I think it's really awesome. You know, it's 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 you know, like you said, right up there with like the Steam Greenlight thing. Um, I I love that they're focusing on indie developers. I think that's the way a lot of a lot of the market's going to go going forward. You know, a lot of people are getting coding skills, and a lot of people are really inspired to be content producers now. Um, so I think it's, it's great that we're fostering that.
0: Absolutely. Now on the flip side of kudos to Apple, we have a a Trojan issue, I think with, with one of the newest releases of Mac OS, I think is what they call it now. So you brought this to my attention. People are having issues with essentially either first or third party software coming with malicious uh, malicious, I guess, tag-ons or however you want to say, you know, a uh, trojan essentially that is part of some coding in the software where, when your Apple computer checks to see if if it's a signed piece of software, like if it has a cer- se- eh, security certificate that that Apple finds is valid, it goes ahead and, and runs that installation or it runs that application uh, to launch on your computer. And this new Trojan, I guess, is pretty pretty hazardous. You know, it's got the ability to key log and access all your program data, your webcam. So what what are kind of the repercussions of this? And what are some of the frustrations if I'm an Apple user that I'm really looking out for?
1: So uh, this is what's called a remote access Trojan, or a RAT for short. Its codename is Proton. Um, it uses a zero-day exception, and so for our users who aren't familiar, a zero-day exception is an exception in a piece of software that is at its uh, inception, right? The, the first day it comes out, or zero-day, um, there's already a flaw, and there are hackers that jump in there and figure out what the exceptions are that they can plug these little back doors through. And this one is particularly... Malicious because it does come with signed and verified security certificates through Apple. How they got their hands on them or how they fabricated them, you know, we can only speculate. Uh, But because of that, it gets through all of the normal antivirus kind of stuff that Apple is producing. I don't know if there are or aren't third party virus programs that might screen this out or malware programs that might screen this out. But I think maybe the biggest frustration for me, running currently, if you guys are watching TV, or even if you're using a streaming service, I see this occasionally pop up on either Hulu or the CW app or whatever, Um, there is an Apple app, or not Apple app, there's an Apple ad which depicts this girl who is scared of viruses on her computer, and the host is just like, oh, well, you don't have to worry about Windows viruses on a Mac. And that is such a misdirection. You know, of of course you don't have to worry about PC viruses on a Mac, but that doesn't mean you don't have to worry about viruses on a Mac. And I think we've gotten so comfortable with this idea that just Macs are just more secure because they are. So the real answer is not switch your operating system. The real answer is go out and get yourself protection, get yourself a malware program, get yourself an antivirus program. You know, I, I read the article where I read about this proton, um, Their suggestion, even if it was a joking suggestion, was if you want to be secure now, I guess you have to go get a Chromebook. And again, that's just kind of this culture of like passing the buck. Like uh, PC's not secure, get a Mac. Mac's not secure, get a Chromebook. And it's really not the way that we as informed people should be like framing this issue for the uninformed masses. Um, I think it's really irresponsible and I would really like to see that done away with.
0: The big issue here... Well, the big issue with the antivirus or the virus thing is obviously that, that this is a big flaw and Apple needs to go ahead and correct this with some kind of new update to Mac OS. But, but the perception issue is kind of what you're dealing with, and that, I totally agree with that. And one of the things that we saw, because I, I do repairs now, but uh, when I was, was doing computer sales, basically the majority of Mac customers who come in are people who have that notion that their Mac can't get a virus. And when you look at install base for both OSs, that's really where that argument comes from. Like, traditionally, 90% of the entire Earth is using Windows PCs as far as personal and business use, and you've got, like, this small market share for Mac and Linux or, like, Unix-based systems. So if you're trying to get money or affect the most people negatively, you're going to write your virus for Windows. Well, Apple's doing a little bit better, and I think perhaps you know the average income of the apple customer is a little bit higher so if you're writing these trojans that essentially hold people's data hostage and you're having them go to some random website and put in their card information then now mac is becoming a sexier choice for you but you're absolutely right you know you don't really want to be telling people that your system can't get viruses or that the solution is is just a jump ship as, as soon as things get bad so we'll we'll see how apple responds going forward but Hopefully, hopefully soon that perception kind of changes and people realize how similar Mac and Windows are in a lot of ways. Last uh, thing we wanted to talk about today, as far as the current events go, is going to be well, actually, I guess, two more things, both related to consoles. So PS4 came out with the 4.5 firmware update. I want to say this was about a week ago. And they added a lot of new features and kind of carried with it some, some bad stuff. So as far as the good stuff that came with this update, they did add external hard drive support. So instead of just swapping out the internal drive like you could have always done, you now have the option to add a hard drive up to 8 terabytes. That's a good thing. They also did some very Xbox-esque features. So when you get an achievement in Xbox on an Xbox One, a lot of times that achievement comes with a custom wallpaper. Well, now you can do custom wallpapers from your favorite games on the PS4, so kind of catching up to Xbox in that regard. And they also added a quick menu that seems like it's pretty similar to Xbox 2 where they updated the quick menu to make it a little bit more user-friendly. So a lot of good usability features with this new update. Unfortunately, it seems like there's also some weird Wi-Fi issues where people who have WPA or WEP passwords, which should be all of you, you know, that's that's Wi-Fi 101, People who have passwords set up often have issues with an error code telling them that for whatever reason, after this 4.5 update, they can't connect to Wi-Fi. So right now, the official Sony response kind of sucks. It's just like, hey, we're looking into it. We know it's an issue. And if you get on the threads, it'll tell you the issue is solved, and then the solution is just that Sony knows about the problem. But at least they're aware of it. Hopefully, in, in like the next month, I would guess... You know this is going to be totally fixed for most of their customers because Sony definitely does not want another black eye like they had years ago when the PSN went out for like a month and people couldn't play online for, for a literal month like twenty eight days this thing was out so that was just a huge issue and I think they're going to work pretty hard to fix this. But anything else you had with that or in regards to that?
1: Not really. Uh, I think you pretty much covered it. Um, like you said, the new OS came out the ninth. It is now the sixteenth. So hopefully they'll have a better response time than maybe. Apple has had with this Proton Trojan, right? Because it's been 53 days since the latest Sierra update, 10.12, came out. Um, so, you know, hopefully it doesn't take two months for Sony to fix this. Um, by the way, Apple is previewing, as of, like, yesterday, um, a, the newest patch to Sierra. So hopefully if that preview goes well, I don't know whether or not this Zero End Exception is closed in that patch or not but one can hope that that is part of what this new patch will will come with so people i guess who have beta access may already have this new patch um and so hopefully they'll be rolling it out here pretty soon so you know silver lining on on the apple thing but you know hopefully sony does not take two months to to fix this error
0: sure so With that, the last thing we had in current events is going to be a little segment on Xbox Live bringing a new feature. Or not really Xbox Live. I don't want to say Xbox Live because in what I was looking up, it's going to come over the air, obviously, as an update for compatibility within your console uh, under your accessibility menu. But it seems like it's going to be on a per-game basis to whether or not they're going to implement a new transcription feature. So what's the transcription all about? And I'm still trying to figure out if it's working on on each game or if it's like a live thing. But what have you heard about uh, Xbox Live voice to text? All right. So it's going to go two different ways.
1: Um, When you're using Xbox Live and you're, you know, with your buddies or the strangers on the Internet, um, you're going to be yelling at each other back and forth just like you always were. Um, But if people have this transcription enabled, then in addition or in lieu of hearing your voice, they're going to get a text, you know, just like you would have in other, like, MMORPGs or whatever, where you have, like, a little text box down in the bottom of the screen um, that's going to pop up everything you're saying, and it's going to be transcribed visually. So people who want to play in quiet can, you know, play in quiet and still communicate with people, um, see what their friends or, or their adversaries are saying or what have you. The other really cool thing about that, though, is for hard of hearing users now that there's a transcription you have essentially closed captioning for the xbox live portion of the content so anything that's in the game as long as the game supports closed captioning and most titles do you get the audio kind of like given out to you if it's like just even in multiplayer i think it'll do potentially closed captioning for like you know, match starting or whatever, but it's only for the game side of it. So this is going to give it to you for the Xbox Live community side of it. So I think it is an Xbox Live thing, but it has to be supported by the... I guess in that case, think of it like um, like split screen playing, right? So like Xbox Live supports the ability to use split screen when you're playing a multiplayer game like Halo but unless your title supports that like Halo does, then you can't use it. Like the Call of Duty franchise doesn't allow you to do that. Um, but it is something that you can do that's integrated with your Xbox and your Xbox Live. Um, so it's still going to be up to the individual manufacturers. And the Halo Wars 2 is going to be the first to come out with this feature enabled. Um, so we'll see going forward if it gets you know retroactively added to some of the more popular titles like Destiny or some of the old Halo games. Uh, potentially some of the Call of Duty franchises um and you know what kind of games roll out with this in the future so i think it's really cool for the hard of hearing i think it's got some nifty applications for those you know like i said that like kind of want to play in silence um it also works the other way around too which is kind of neat so in addition to this kind of dragon voice to text they're also going to have a text to speech option so for people who are playing with a keyboard or potentially people who are uh, mute who who can't speak, um, they can type out their responses and send it. And then the other users on Xbox Live will be able to hear what they said because it will be read out to them. Um, so just some really neat accessibility options. I I guess, you know, and this is terrible for me because I actually work in a, uh, a relay, a telephone relay uh, service and so I actually do closed captioning for the hard of hearing, for telephone calls, and you know I should, I don't know maybe have my ear more to the ground as far as you know how the hard of hearing community and accessibility are in general, um, but I I didn't really even think about what a big gap online gaming is for for those who are hard of hearing, um, so I think this is really neat that they've done this, and I hope that other platforms follow suit.
0: That's going to wrap it up for current events. Now we're going to move on into an interesting segment that I think both of us have some pretty unique takes on. We're going to talk about Hollywood bias, and this is... I don't i don't even know if that's really the word I want to use, but in particular, kind of two things that Hollywood does, or really the media, I don't, I don't want to just put all the kind of onus of this on Hollywood, but two things that happen frequently are queer coding and whitewashing. So first of all, queer coding that, well, you know what, Jake, tell you what, why don't you cover this and I will react. And then, uh, and then we'll go ahead and switch.
1: All right. That sounds good. So what queer coding is, is, uh, an insertion of a character who's either a comedic foil or very often the villain in a film who is given flamboyant characteristics, who is obviously made to seem stereotypically homosexual, or in the other, you know, for, for women, is, is meant to be very butch, right? But they are also, like a, like I said, a negative or comedic character, so you either, in the best cases, don't take them seriously, really, as a person or a character, because they're not giving anything that drives the story, or they're a villain, And so you're kind of like from a very young age exposed to all these different sources of media that tell you that people who act stereotypically gay are bad people. Um, So Disney is actually pretty notorious for this. And I don't, I'm not going to say like the studio had the intent to cast homosexuals in a malicious light. But when they do this, you know, subconsciously or not, it does tend to create that effect. So some, you know, common villains from from Disney would be like Captain Hook uh, from Peter Pan, Governor Radcliffe from Pocahontas. Ursula is also an example of this. Ursula is actually uh, based on Divine, who was a big drag queen uh, performer. And so they have all these villains that have this you know flamboyancy to them and so you know as you're a kid and watching these movies you know you're not maybe thinking about it but you're like oh well you know people who act like that like maybe i should worry about them and so this this kind of came to the my forefront of my mind with beauty and the beast coming out so i've not seen it yet it technically released late last night i'll probably go see it today or this weekend um And Emma Watson is in the movie. So hopefully, you know, because she is a very progressive voice, especially in feminism, but also in general. And I would hope that she would not be in this production or be as vocally supportive of this production as she has been if she felt like there was some kind of unfair slant against the LGBT community um in the inclusion of this subplot with Lafou but LeFou's another great example of a character that it was kind of like not only just kind of gay in the original depiction, but also kind of like gimpish. So he was already kind of the laughing stock of the original movie. He is also a villain character. So he's kind of like the tour de force of queer coding. He's both somebody you're not supposed to take seriously and somebody who has malicious intent. So, you know, everybody's like. Go Disney! They've got a prominent gay character in one of their movies, but it's this laughable villain. Like, that's not a prominent gay character. You know, a prominent character representing a minority might be... I don't know if you've seen the trailers for Coco yet. uh, But the next Pixar movie coming out is going to be largely focused on, like, Hispanic culture, which is very cool. And I guess, you know, maybe we'll touch on that kind of stuff in the whitewashing segment of this. So that's neat. Like your protagonist is Hispanic and you're going into like Mesoamerican and Mexican culture with your storyline. That is awesome. You know, Moana and uh, the uh, Princess and the Frog, you know, they kind of went into other minority groups and brought them to the forefront of the movie in very responsible ways. So I would like to see more of that. Sure. There are some people who really get this right On the other side of this, um, I've been, and we haven't really talked about them yet because I haven't completely caught up to this season of the DC uh, television shows yet, but, you know, they do a lot of things wrong in those shows, mostly from a narrative standpoint, but something I have treasured since I first saw it in The Flash, they have done a remarkably responsible job with their LGBT characters i i have to give them props where props is due because at the end of the day like i'm not looking for the main hero of the story to be gay and it to be wonderful that he's gay like you know i don't i don't want them to do the same thing to gay characters that they are currently doing to heterosexual characters where they're just you know like ridiculously over the top like they do in the disney prince and princess movies right like that's not the relationship i want to see I would rather see a more responsible and realistic approach, where being gay is completely secondary to the character. You get in Flash the uh, the captain or the police chief, and there's just this one-off line where they're sitting there talking to him, and he's eating a burger at his desk, and he's like, "Man, I got to do this here because if my husband saw me, he'd kill me because my cholesterol's through the roof, right? Or my my doctor's on me for my heart or whatever." And it's just such a small little throwaway line. And But it, it it's responsible. It's slice of life. It's like, this is accurate. Like, being gay isn't everything that somebody who's gay is about. Um, And being a gay man, like, I can speak to that. Like, being gay is not the end-all be-all of my life. I have other interests. There are other things about me than just the fact that I'm gay. And I'm a normal person just like anybody else. So when it's normalized, I think that's really responsible and really cool. So, yeah. So there's a lot of responsible ways, you know, to put that in your media and just be like, listen... People are people, regardless of who they love, and it just, it just gets under my skin. When in 2017, we still have big production houses like Disney who think that it's okay just to shove these characteristics on a villain.
0: Yeah, well, I think we should probably clarify. We're not necessarily condemning uh, everyone, everyone involved with the production, and a lot of this, realistically, is probably and unfortunately so ingrained in a filmmaker's or a, a production. Anyone involved in the production in their mind that it doesn't seem out of the norm. So, like, when you roll your eyes because you hear a term like queer coding, it just sounds so just it's like, why do we even have a term for this? Like, why is this even a thing? But realistically, when you look at it, like you said, all those villains you named are like that. Even you know, Scar, who in my mind, I'm like, oh, that guy's a badass. When you actually go and watch The Lion King. He seems to have his eye shadow thing going on. He's very sultry and sexual and kind of flamboyant in the way he talks. So you're right. There are always these outliers or like the other is always kind of the Disney villain. And I and I don't necessarily think that Disney's out to crucify gay people or – and I don't think you think that either. But it is unfortunate that that's the case where like that mindset hasn't changed and, and and if we've let that become normal, then that's even really worse than the fact that they did it in the first place. But hopefully going forward, like you said, more productions, more films, shows are not necessarily just embracing gay people in that, you know, hey, we're we're gay and we're here. It's more just like what you're talking about where we just have good characters and if they're gay or if they're straight and that's not relevant to the story we're telling – then that's fine. And if it is relevant, then that's fine too. But it doesn't have to be the selling point. And I think sometimes on the scale, you've got like the super gay character that is the villain or whatnot, or you've got the uh, the total opposite end of things where like we try to make these gay characters and make you know that they're gay because, hey, we're f- we're friends with the gays. So hopefully, you know, we can find a good balance. And like you said, there's there's some things that are doing that.
1: You know, I'm sitting here at a desk that is completely... I mean, you've seen my Disney desk, right? So, like, everything on this desk is is Disney, right? Disney has always been a part of our lives, has been a huge part of my life. And I think in a lot of ways it has been very socially responsible. But like you said, there is just this underpinning in production houses in general, whether it's the screenwriter or the producers or the the directors, um, or maybe even somewhat in the actors, where it's just like, this is something we've seen for a really long time, and we're just going to keep going with it. And they're not necessarily maliciously thinking, ha ha ha, we're sticking it to the gays because we're making them the villains in all of our movies, any more than I think people thought, ha ha ha, we're sticking it to the Brits because we're making them the bad guys in all of our movies. But, you know, it, it is still an unfortunate circumstance that I think needs to be uh, addressed
0: now, that's actually a really good segue kind of to the next bit that I was going to talk about, which is the fact that something has been the way it is for a while. It just kind of goes unnoticed, and that's with whitewashing in a lot of not just Hollywood, but, but in media in general. So this is brought up, I want to say, probably like once a year, you know, at least once a year, if not more. There's a movie that comes out with a cast that should be Asian or African or Greek or whatever the case is and they are always white American or British leads and to an extent that's understandable from a business standpoint. A very good example of this and also a very bad example is the Great Wall movie that just came out. So that's a movie about uh, some sort of kind of fantastic interpretation of the Great Wall of China, and of course Matt Damon is the lead in that film. So from a studio's perspective, you put a character like Matt Damon in so that it sells really well. From a cultural perspective, it just feels like you shoehorned in a white savior guy because that's what we're used to, or that's what people like to see. So that comes up a lot in every genre of movie, especially in action films, but kind of in everything. So Another really good example that's coming out soon is the Ghost in the Shell movie. Uh, I am actually really excited to see that, and I'm going to give Scarlett Johansson kind of the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Like The Great Wall, the lead is a white actor, and everyone else is actually, or most of the other people, seem like they are cast like they should be. You know, There's a lot of Japanese actors in that film, uh, in the Ghost in the Shell film, so I'm not convinced that it isn't going to just be more of the same. But it does look like it could be good. But that's kind of getting off topic. So we see this all the time, right? Like if you look at 300 and kind of going back to what you said about British people being the villains, well, like if we are just a general audience and we don't seem to know a lot about the topic, you're just going to go ahead and throw in a bunch of British white actors to be the leads. That happened in 300. It happens in Clash of the Titans, it's like we can't actually get Greek or Persian actors to play these characters. We have to get white people because, you know, we're familiar with Sam Worthington or whoever it is. As far as the kind of history of this, you know, a lot of this not just having non-correct characters in films, but just like not having other than white people in films goes back a long time to when Hollywood producers would defend back when pictures were still in black and white, they would say things like, well, black people don't film very well, or it's very hard to light black people. So that's the reason why in a black and white picture, we don't have a lot of black actors, which if you watch Casablanca, you know, or, or something like that, where it's a black and white film with a black actor just seems like total bullshit. And it kind of is, but that's a lot of where those roots are. And then going forward now as a, as a, counter to that it seems like we've settled into this let's get a cast together and let's just put like a black guy in there so that it's it seems like we're being racially sensitive or, or something like that and i had this thought too jake which was totally off the wall but man how did the original power ranger show get away with making the black ranger a black guy and the yellow ranger is an asian woman like <laughs> Could they not have made the Asian girl the Pink Ranger and made the white chick Amy Jo Johnson the Yellow Ranger? Like, I just don't get how that slipped through. <laughs> and if that came out in today's day and age like that, the kind of backlash that you would get for calling the Asian character the Yellow Ranger and the black character the Black Ranger. <laughs> but either way. So, so yeah, you know, this happens all the time. And even in kind of ensemble roles, Movies that get it right, like Rogue One that we talked about, where you still have really good Asian leads uh, and there are some Middle Eastern characters, it's still always like the white protagonist. So we'll see. Actually, I don't want to say we'll see. I think there is kind of a growing resistance to this. And if you look at films like The Great Wall, if you watch that preview, that movie looks like shit and it did horribly and it looks dumb and I'm glad that it tanked. But I think people are just kind of getting tired of that. And I hope that movie studios realize that, like, we're okay. You know, I am empathetic enough. I can suspend my disbelief that if you put a black woman or a gay character as the main character, even if I'm not those things, I could still put myself in that person's shoes. And that's really what film is about is kind of can you project? And if you can, you have something. So I don't know if you want to add anything on whitewashing, but. That's just kind of the the things that I picked up on is just being a movie buff for 20 years.
1: Yeah, uh, I I don't think necessarily that you have to uh, suspend your disbelief to believe that a gay or black character can be the protagonist. I know you didn't mean to say it like that, but like I think it's actually more of a suspension of disbelief the other way, that I'm just supposed to believe that in every important historical or fictional thing ever, it's always been a white person that's come to save the day, you know? And it's always been somebody of color or somebody flamboyant who's been the bad person. Like, um and we could go into this. I mean it it, it extends past just race too. It also extends into like Gender, um, as well, and certain, like, stereotypes that we see again and again that are really hurtful both towards men and towards women in media. So, yeah, whitewashing is, is really an affront. I would say with 300, the real crime of that movie is just the 100% out of context that it is. The Spartans were not the good people in. You know, the, the Persians had a much more egalitarian government. But, that I mean, that's entirely off the point. But, like, depicting the Persians because they're the quote-unquote other, because the Greek people are the people who wrote history, right? So, and they're the people who are more, like, Caucasian or white. So, we're going to put it from their point of view because they're obviously the good guys because they're white. You know, it's just not responsible. It doesn't help history at all. One of the movies I really liked for this uh, was Kingdom of Heaven. Um, and I love Kingdom of Heaven in general. It's one of my favorite movies, and I know you enjoy it too. Um, but they did a very good job with the characterization of the um, Islamic characters, um, these the Seljuk Turks that uh, salahuddin led into Jerusalem, and, and just kind of like. And I thought it was, it was really responsible for for uh, Ridley Scott at the time because that movie came out like right around all the big tensions with uh terrorist attacks at 9/11 and all the wars you know in Afghanistan and Iraq to kind of be like listen like muslims aren't some other scary person they're not some boogeyman we can put them responsibly as an antagonist of the movie but they're not the villain of the movie by any stretch you know the villain of the movie in that case is actually a bunch of like xenophobic white people so it was like oh man that's that's on point because like we see that all the time in real life so i think the real more suspension of disbelief is to think that these colonial superpowers are always the good guys and it's you know the rest of history that had it wrong um, but like i say you know history is written by the victors So, you know, going forward, I would like to see less of this whitewashing. I would like to see more accurate depictions of both, like, historical cultures, if we're going for history, um, or if we're doing, you know, maybe not a period piece, but, you know, a piece like this that's based on a manga, uh, because we were talking about uh, Ghost in the Shell, I I would want to see a principally... Asian cast and I think and and I think Scarlett Johansson is gonna do a great job and I love Scarlett Johansson and I know that she was greenlit for this project by the people the creative minds responsible for the manga and the anime but something you know for for those some people who've seen the um they did like an extended preview viewing of the first so much of the film you know for people to kind of give like teaser reviews on And one of the things that was revealed is that her character, not only did they anglicize her name, but they additionally took a Asian woman who is killed in the beginning of this film and then took her brain and put it in this white body. So it almost goes like one step further. Like, we're not just going to make this a white character. We're going to tell you that to improve an Asian character, we should make it white. Which... You know, it's,
0: Yeah, that was a little suspect, and and if you followed the production of that film, uh, I want to say probably a couple months back when they really started releasing marketing material, there was even, when there was so much backlash, they kind of, I guess, internally considered using special effects to make Scarlett Johansson appear more Asian, which is like the total wrong answer, you know?
1: Let's just do blackface, but it's cool because we're using, you know, CGI in the 21st century.
0: Exactly. So A, as a society, we need to work on it, and B, films that don't do well, you know, we need to learn from those lessons because I don't think even the every man is that upset when, you know, the main character in Ghost in the Shell is a Japanese actor and not a white actress. But that's all we're going to talk about with our Hollywood bias, and and please, you know, if you guys listen to this, feel free to get back to us. We do have Facebook and Twitter pages up now, and you can leave comments on these in SoundCloud, so just, you know, let us know what you guys think about it, if you think we're just total assholes, or if, if there's something to be said for all this. Either way, we're moving on into this week's unfinished business, and we are throwing it back to Bioshock for a little final recap, and apologies guys, this week's show is going to run a little bit long, but with Bioshock this week Jake you you beat this since we last talked and I know you're a fan like I am so what were your final thoughts on Bioshock if we could just kind of wrap that up sure so
1: when we last left our intrepid Ryan spawn I had just killed Andrew Ryan and had the big reveal in the game uh, which I guess spoiler alerts um, but if you've listened to the second podcast then, then you've already had these uh, warnings. And so, like the rest of the game, you're fighting against, you know, Fontaine. And so it was uh, a really interesting story. Still, uh, going through the the final few levels, uh, Olympus Heights and uh, and the the courtyard and everything, and then going through like the really, really dark. The little the little sisters and the big daddies were made, um, and then also the proving grounds for them. There were some really dark themes there and i think it was it was handled really well i think it was really like the audio and the anguish behind what is her name the scientist that's kind of behind the little sisters
0: bridget tenenbaum
1: tenenbaum yeah just to hear her talk about it and and realize how how much of a monster she realizes that they were in retrospect you know for doing this to these little girls that you know even after your character if like my character did you chose to free all these girls from their programming or whatever there's still some things that are so monstrous and ingrained in them that there's almost no coming back from that so then you know eventually you're just you're just gathering items at this point you know uh to become a big daddy so that the little sister can lead you through the end of the game Um, And then the end of the game, of course, is a big fight with Ryan, not Ryan, with Fontaine. And Fontaine has kind of become the Nietzsche, beast kind of character. He's just super roided out, and it's all about might makes right, and uh, I'm going to put you down because, you know, I'm the biggest guy on the playground. And so you, you know, square off against them, and I found that fight to be um, a little underwhelming. I think, you know, there is so much exposition in this game. I really would have liked to have seen a little more pause for dialogue in the ending fight. As it was, it was just... It's so chaotic, and there's so much going on, and it's so fast... That I didn't really get to appreciate the weight of this being, like, the final encounter of the game. You know, when everything else is built up with all this pomp and circumstance and backstory... And then this is just kind of like dirty gritty get in get it done and be over with it and i was honestly a little bit let down by the ending of the game you know for me i almost kind of wished that i had just ended with the reveal that ryan was my father and fontaine had engineered me you know to be this psycho killer thing or whatever and come back and exact vengeance for him yeah i just kind of wished that it almost said the story had almost ended there. Uh because you don't get any more resolution. You know, Bethesda similarly does something like this at the end of all the Fallout games where they just have this like vignette of photographs and little like words on the screen that tell you what happened to all the other little factions that you had dealings with in the games once your character's arc has come to a close. And uh and so they they kinda do that in a video form at the end of Bioshock. But it is so fast and there are really no details about what happens to your character that it just feels like a hollow victory. Like you just played through all this game and there's really not a big payoff at the end. Um, so as beautiful as I think the game is and as wonderful as the story was and the music and the gameplay was awesome, you know, I, I thought the ending left a lot to be desired.
0: So that was a definitely a common criticism. That was really the biggest criticism of the game was, A, the final boss fight is mediocre, and B, the ending is is whatever. So you do get some one-liners from Fontaine, but you're right. There's not all this deep dialogue that you probably grew to want as you played through Bioshock. And that really is both saddening as a player, but realistically, like if you pay attention to all the lore, which I know you have, that really reflects the differences between The showdown you have with Ryan and the showdown you have with Fontaine, right? Fontaine is this blunt object that, while he is crafty, is, at the end of the day, still not what Ryan was. And you get the impression that Ryan was still really the driving force behind everything and that Fontaine is kind of like this parasitic leech onto Ryan's legacy. But either way, the ending was kind of weak. You get that video, so if you've played it, you know that at the end, if you save all the little sisters, you free them from their, uh, their aquatic prison, and then when they come out into the real world, they all become these successful doctors and school graduates. You live your life, and then when you die, the very end of the game is that your character has died, and he has all these little essential—essentially his daughters all around him as he's dying, all these girls that he saved— So it is kind of bizarre that you get this storybook ending to this totally macabre kind of twisted game. Uh, One thing I forgot to mention last time we played, and I want to know if you did the same thing, but one of the greatest gaming moments I've ever had in my life was with Bioshock where, or, or most well thought out from a development standpoint, and that's where when you're going through and there's that twisted kind of artist-pianist guy, Sander Cohen. He wants you to go kill three of his rivals, and when you kill them, you have to take a picture of their body, and he puts that into his his, his artwork. Do you recall this, Jake?
1: Uh, yeah, there are actually four rivals, but continue.
0: Okay, so his four rivals. When you go and kill all of them, he gives you a reward, and he comes down this staircase, and it's a really bizarre interaction, because in Bioshock, you're kind of taught that every character you meet, you should probably kill. So when he comes down, you can just let him leave, or you can kill him. Well, if you have played Bioshock, you know that if you do let him live, at the end of the game, you can go into his apartment, and that gives you access to another Power to the People station, once you actually do kill him in his apartment, which is, I guess, optional at that point, too. So I'm curious to see what you did. But... The fantastic thing about this is you get an achievement for completing his story arc by taking pictures of the bodies. And just out of nowhere, I don't know why I did this, but when I went into his apartment later, he ended up attacking me and I killed him. And I was like, man, I wonder what happens if I take a picture of his body. So I bust out the camera, I take a picture of his body, and a fucking achievement pops up. And it just blew my mind. It was the coolest thing ever that they could have predicted that I would have wanted to do that. Like as some sort of sick poetic justice, I gave this guy a taste of his own medicine. And I was rewarded for that with this hidden achievement. And I've looked, and it's not announced. It's hidden. So you don't know about it unless you've looked it up online because it isn't in the list of achievements. But I'm wondering if you did something similar or if you actually just killed him kind of when he comes down that staircase or if you just left him alone the entire time.
1: That is awesome. No, I you know, I waited till he gave me my reward or whatever. Um but you know, when you first come into that sanctuary, you see the two different like lock boxes there and you're really interested to know what's in that second one, right? So when he comes down, he's like, "Well, I'll open this one for you, but you haven't earned the other one. So go fuck yourself." I was like, "You know what? No, go fuck you." Um <laughs> So yeah, I killed him, Um and then opened up the other <laughs> box. I, I mean, the dude had me kill a bunch of other people. I didn't seem like you know, it didn't seem like he was particularly... And it's funny, it's funny. So for so why Phil's laughing, right? Is because, and we we hit on this a little bit when we were talking about *Netsuke Republic*. Is that like I always play the goody two shoes kind of character, and he usually always goes through and does like the evil thing. And so this is like a huge role reversal for us that I just killed this guy out of spite and and he let him live. Uh <laughs> but no that's you know maybe I will see if I have a save file far enough back or or just play through it all again and and uh and leave him alive just so I get that little ending. I don't think it'll help me with it. I mean, it'll give me the achievement. I think that's such an ingenious achievement though. You're, you're absolutely right. That's this, the whole turning the tables and getting an achievement for that.
0: Well, the, the, the thing about it too is, is um you can actually, when you killed him, when he comes down the stairs, you can take the picture there too. And it still gives you the achievement. The only advantage to waiting is that when you go into his apartment, when you're going, uh, I think it was like an orphanage in the apartment buildings or something. But anyway, when you're going into his apartment, you can't get in unless he lets you in if you let him live initially. And when you go in there, there's these two um there's these two splicers that are dancing and he won't let them stop dancing and there's like a bomb strapped to a piano and he tells you not to interrupt them. So you should look this scene up on YouTube. But when you interrupt if you go up and you mess with the piano or you knock the record player off or whatever the case is or if you touch either one of them, they break up their dance and they start attacking you. And then once you kill them, he freaks out and he comes down the stairs to attack you. And that's when you get the chance to kill him. And then when you go up the stairs, you're in his personal bedroom and there's a power to the people station. So that's the, I think that's the only missable power to the people station that, that you have to do a certain thing for.
1: And I wonder about that too, because in order to get the achievement, like every weapon has two upgrades and I'm pretty sure I got, all the power to the people stations in the game other than that one, which means that that would be an odd one, which means that you wouldn't get an achievement for for customizing another weapon fully. So I don't, I don't really know what the purpose of having one extra one, unless there's another one I missed in the game and there are a total of even with his.
0: Well, yeah, each gun I think has two upgrades. So I think you just missed two because you can fully upgrade every weapon and that's the last upgrade would be. I believe his, but either way, I'm glad you enjoyed Bioshock. I'd still like it if you finished the next two. Those aren't really necessarily unfinished business. Those are just old games you never played, but they are very good. And like I said, the DLC for two is the best DLC I've ever played for a game. And Infinite is probably my favorite of the three. So we'll definitely have to dive back in if you get a chance to play those. Also, no pun intended, but dive back in. That was great. (laughs) all right I think that about wraps it up for this week that's going to be all for the Balmora brothers I'm your host Philip
1: and I'm your other host Jacob thanks for listening